All right. Ready to read the thing? In the United States, civilian parachute rigging is a highly regulated industry. Before a rigger is able to mend, pack, or assess damage to any type of parachute, he or she must complete an apprenticeship under the supervision of a senior rigger and pass oral and written examinations on sewing, packing, and theory, all under the watchful eye of the Federal Aviation Administration. Most riggers never have to think about the parachutes they work on again once they're sealed and passed along to the customer. But a licensed master parachute rigger named Earl Cossey did. In fact, he endured hundreds of questions about two parachutes he'd packed in early 1971. He gave minute descriptions of both of them to both reporters and FBI agents, and for nearly 50 years he participated in identifying dozens of parachutes and parachute scraps found in the dense forest of southeast Washington state. Mr. Cossey didn't seem to enjoy the task, complaining about the FBI requests to one reporter in 2008 Quote, they keep bringing me garbage, end quote. But he did understand the logic behind the constant questioning. After all, the two parachutes he'd packed for a sports store in Seattle had gone on to be involved in the only unsolved case of air piracy in the history of the commercial American airline industry. Those parachutes were, the FBI thought, the key to the whole mystery. If they had opened properly... Earl Cossey's parachutes might have carried the hijacker either to safety or further peril. If they hadn't, they might still be attached to the remains of a person that law enforcement has been seeking for 45 years. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1971 hijacking of Northwest RN Flight 305, the story of D.B. Cooper. Nice. Thank you so much. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, parachute designer for Relative Disasters Skydiving Corporation, LLC. And I'm her brother Greg, vice president of currency serial number tracking for Relative Disasters Banking Interests. Uh, thank you so much for that wonderfully read story. As always, you really, you do a nice job with those. I keep meaning to give you a uh-huh. compliment on the air and I never quite get to it. So there it is. That's all right. You never give me a compliment in real life either. It's so part okay. of our dynamic. Yes. It's part of our, our, our dynamic. You see. <laughs> if we start telling each other we're good at these things. Where does oh, it go thank from you. there? I, that means Where a lot. does it go? Thank you. Okay. Um... Our main source for this episode. Okay. Well, first, before we start, (laughs) before we start, I just want to acknowledge that this story is a vortex of conspiracy theories. It's just a big web of, okay. So like you read the Wikipedia article, you're like, okay, I know what happened. No, No, you you really don't. You watch a documentary. (laughs) You're like, where was the stuff in the Wikipedia article? Um, You read articles online especially from the small papers in washington state yeah you're like oh "Oh, that happened and then you read like the fbi report and you're like what exactly is going on it's like the dunning kruger effect if you read one thing about db cooper you're like oh okay i understand what happened i have my own theory here's how it went down if you read more than one you're like oh 
this is complicated. <laughs> nothing, nothing makes sense. Uh, so our main our main source for this is the official FBI report, which I think is the most. It's probably the closest we can get. Yeah. Yeah, it's. We'll get into why <laughs> it's such a vortex, but. <laughs> The FBI report is a good place to start if you are, like me, uh, constantly running late and need <laughs> one single definitive source to lean on. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, so I thought we could begin by talking about air travel in 1971. Truly the Wild West of air travel. <laughs> yes. So this is one of the strangest hijackings that has ever happened anywhere. Yeah. Um, and it could only have occurred at the time it did. So in 1971, air travel was booming. Tickets were cheap. Planes were huge. Yep. There were more flights and more airports than ever before. And it was astonishingly cheap. Mm-hmm. For example, $20 at the airport would get you a ticket on a flight from Portland to Seattle. Even with inflation, that's okay. only $140 today, which is a pretty good price for a ticket. I sure. pretended that I wanted to travel from Portland to Seattle right now (laughs) and the cheapest ticket i could find was four hundred dollars whoa yeah and that's just a puddle jump too that's it's like a 35 minute flight yeah uh you go up you go down it's a single cocktail flight (laughs) so the process of getting an airline ticket was walking into an airport and handing over some cash yeah Right. Yeah. You didn't have to show an ID. You didn't have to get scanned. Nope. Uh, no dogs sniffing <laughs> you. You don't even have to put out nope. your cigarette because you are 100% okay to smoke the whole time. Smoke yep. on the flights. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's basically taking a Greyhound bus only in the sky and with cocktails. I don't think they serve yes. cocktails on Greyhound buses. It's been a while since I've taken Well, they don't one. officially serve cocktails. With the right attitude. <laughs> the right attitude it's Any always place cocktail, is hour. A cocktail bar <laughs> this is wonderful for travelers it also means that hijackings are a real problem <laughs> you right because <think>? <laughs> if you can walk onto a plane with anything in your pockets a certain yeah. amount of people are going to put weapons in their pockets and use it to tell the pilot where to go and what to do uh and at this point airlines are generally negotiating you know sure sure uh, I just want to give you a couple examples because the more I read about this, the more I was like, that did not happen. Yes, but they all did. In 1970, a Pan Am flight to San Juan with 379 people aboard was hijacked and flown to Havana instead. That same year, a group called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was responsible for four hijackings, all flown to Jordan, which resulted in a three-week-long hostage crisis. Okay. That's less yeah, fun. it's none of it is fun. I was hoping one of them, one of the stories would be like some dude hijacked a plane so he could get to, you know, a wedding on time or something. No, they're not charming. No, uh, I really do not like hijackings, um, but I do love the idea of walking into an airport with an overnight bag, not getting x-rayed, yeah. keeping my shoes on, uh, just buying a ticket at yep. the counter without any identification whatsoever and just hopping onto a plane. There are reasons why we can't do that anymore. Yeah. And uh, one of those reasons is D.B. Cooper. So let's get into it, shall we? Let let me just, before we get started, Uh um, at your request, I did absolutely no no research on this topic, no looking into it. I have read several really fun uh, D.B. Cooper, 
you know, stories in the past. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and as you said, everyone has a theory, but I actually, I'm pretty sure that I know like for a fact how this one turned out. So I cannot wait till we get to the end and you ask me what my theory is because I, it, it's it's amazing. I think Spoiler, the FBI listens to this it. podcast. So I think they they're going to be very happy. We want to say hi to our friends in the FBI. <laughs> um, hi, Carl. I think his name is Carl. He's my personal agent. He's the one who started listening in on my phone calls after I was talking about, uh, I think it was Jonestown that got me put on the list. Poor Carl. But uh, yeah, so Carl, this one's for you, bud. Okay, so you did no research and you have a theory. No research whatsoever. Yes, I mean, that puts you right in the middle of D.B. Cooperville. Going into it with no research, having read just a couple of things, picked up a couple of details here and there, and absolutely positively knowing what happened. You're in great shape. I mean, I am. I am. I should be posting on Facebook. I mean, feel free. I don't don't control your Facebook. Okay, I'm excited for this story because like everything about this story is like it's it's like a it's like a modern day ghost ship story. It's like the guy robbed a plane and vanished. And I love that. What a hook. I mean, there's a reason why D.B. Cooper is kind of a folk hero. But it's not great. (laughs) It's not as cut and dry as we would like it to be. These are the good true facts as reported by the FBI. (laughs) Okay. This shouldn't take long. <laughs> Please be aware, people lie to the FBI all the time. People make mistakes. People recall things in a weird way. I'm going to do my I'm... absolute best here. On November 24th, 1971, this is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, one of the busiest travel days of the year. Okay. A man walking into Portland International Airport bought one of those $20 tickets for that evening's Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 bound for Seattle. Okay. This man gives the name Dan Cooper when he buys the ticket, and he's described as an absolutely unremarkable looking business traveler. A lot of people get a good look at him. But he just slips right out of their memories. Yeah, because nobody's able to point to anything distinctive about him whatsoever. Sure. So he's a white man, olive complexion, in his 40s, between 5'6 and 6 feet tall, (laughs) average build, brown hair, brown eyes. Perfect. Okay. We've got him cornered. (laughs) Try and pick that dude out of a crowd. Yeah, no kidding. He's also dressed in a black suit with a white dress shirt and a black clip-on tie from JCPenney. Ooh. And a long black raincoat. And he's carrying a briefcase and a small green paper bag. I guarantee you that one million men fit this description right down to the clip-on tie. And they were all Mm -hmm. (laughs) buying $20 airplane tickets. Yes. There's just absolutely nothing remarkable or interesting about Dan Cooper as he lines up with the other passengers and climbs aboard flight 305. In other words, his plan is working perfectly. You get the sense throughout this that he yeah. puts a lot of thought into it. And this is definitely yeah. one one aspect of that. Sure. Now, flight 305 is a small jet for a short trip. It's a Boeing okay. 727, which is a single aisle plane that seats about 125 passengers and has a crew of six. Okay. Well, this particular plane is designed with three engines. They're all attached to the tail, so the wings okay. are nice and clean. You get on and off the plane by a descending stairway that comes down at the rear behind the wings. Okay. Are you picturing it in your head? Yeah, I got it. 
And this is pre-jetway, so when the flight is ready for them around 2.30 in the afternoon, the 42 people taking flight 305 have to walk out onto the tarmac and climb these stairs to get aboard. Sure. Now, the flight is only about a third full, and Dan Cooper takes a seat in the back row of the plane. Okay, when the plane takes off right on schedule, he does something very strange. He takes a pair of sunglasses out of the paper bag and puts them on. Then he does something less strange, which is order a bourbon and soda. And then halfway okay. through his drink, he turns around and hands a note to the flight attendant in the jump seat behind his row at the back of the plane. Okay. Just want to do a quick sidebar here for the art of flight attending in 1971. Yes, please. The airline industry at this time is really trying to sell flying as the sexy way to travel. Yep. And they hire attractive young women as air hostesses almost exclusively. Yeah. So flight attendants are expected to be helpful, smart, vaguely flirtatious, and yep. they have to meet an insane standard for appearance, which includes full makeup, a five-pound weight range, yep. high heels, and a spotless uniform. On Northwest Orient, that would be a red mini dress with a matching hat and jacket. Mm. It's very... <laughs> it's very... I'm sexy. sure. I'm sure. It goes almost without saying that flight attendants are harassed nonstop. So when Dan Cooper hands this particular flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, his little note, she says, thank you very much, and drops it unopened into her purse, where she puts all the <laughs> phone numbers of the businessmen yep. she never wants to see again. Yep. And this is when he leans over and whispers in her ear, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb in my briefcase. Okay. So that's where we're at. That would get my attention, Yes. The note was a polite request to come sit in the empty seat next to him, and Miss Schaffner does. She's very cool about it, too. She asks to see the bomb, and he opens the briefcase and shows her what looks like eight sticks of dynamite attached to a battery. Okay. Then he asks her again, very politely, to write a note to the captain. This is the quote. Okay. I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. in cash. Put it in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff, or I'll do the job. End quote. Now, this is not a direct quote, because okay. this note is no longer in existence. So that's the best somebody can recall it? This is what Ms. Schaffner thinks the note said. Okay. okay. So the captain, when he receives this note, immediately informs air traffic control in Seattle that Flight 305 is being hijacked. He repeats yep. the demands... And they, in turn, inform Northwest Orient, the police, and the FBI. Okay. The demands are kind of brilliant. Okay. First, there's the amount of money, which he wants in $20 bills, which is a very spendable denomination. Yep. $200,000 is about $1.3 in today's dollars. So it's a hefty yep. amount of money, but it's not an outrageous fortune. Right. Also, it's within the reach of the airline to get that much cash from the bank and rush it to the airport, which they do after photographing okay. the money for the serial numbers. Sure. Yep. And they have to know they're going to get it back from their insurers. This is not like a bankrupting yeah. amount of money. Right. 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 And finally, it's a portable amount of money. So it actually would fit in a backpack and it shouldn't have weighed enough to ruin a skydiving jump. Sure. So this is something obviously he's planned out. Yeah. Second, he's asking for four parachutes. That's two main chutes and two reserves. That's extra cautious. Well, if he'd asked for one, the FBI yeah. or the police or whoever was handing it over could yep. have rigged it to fail. Right, exactly. But four parachutes, so two sets, suggests yeah. that he just might be taking someone with him. 
Oh, as okay. a hostage. Okay. So okay. nobody's going to give him a bad parachute. Nobody's going to give him a rigged parachute. Okay. Right. And right. third, the fuel truck tells the FBI that he and the flight crew will be traveling onwards a long way from Seattle. So a 727 right. isn't designed for long haul like international flights. Right. They can go hundreds of miles on a full tank. Sure, sure. So a full tank means he's got some big traveling to do. He's got a, a wider radius. So air traffic control tells the pilot to circle the airport until they can get those things together. Okay. And he ends up just flying in circles around Puget Sound for two hours. Oh, my God. What he tells the passengers is that there's been a minor mechanical difficulty, and they okay. need to use up their fuel before they land. Okay. So during this time, Dan Cooper relaxes. Two hours is a lot of time to kill. And mm. uh, he and one of the flight attendants, Tina Mucklow, have some cigarettes and chat with the bomb on an empty seat beside them. Okay. I'm just going to read you a quote from the FBI report when they interviewed Miss Mucklow. Quote, she asked him why he picked Northwest Airlines to hijack, and he laughed and said, it's not because I have a grudge against your airline, it's just because I have a grudge. He paused and said that the flight suited his time, place, and plans. End quote. Huh. Okay. So the flight landed at 545, two hours behind schedule, and well away from the main terminal on an unused, unlit runway. Okay. It wasn't until the passengers were bussed back to the terminal and met by dozens of state and federal agents, plus reporters, that they even knew their flight had been hijacked. Okay. Which, if you're going to hijack a flight, and we That's, do not condone yeah. hijacking of any kind. <laughs> Dear listeners, please don't hijack flights. Um, but if you are going to, like, this is really the most polite way to do it, I think. Sure. You tell people about the hijacking after they've landed and been met by the police. Okay, so they're on the ground for about an hour. The things he's asked for arrive, and uh, that's when the passengers are let off. Okay. The money comes in a canvas bag instead of a knapsack, which seems to really irritate Mr. Cooper, but again, he's polite about it. I mean, they gave him a bank bag. A yep. <laughs> bank bag is not a backpack. Yep. He even offers to tip the flight attendants $20 each for handling all his notes and getting the money and the parachutes on board, <laughs> but they all decline. <laughs> Probably for the best. Well, they turn him down not because they're scared of him, but because Northwest Orient has a very strict, strict no-tipping no tipping policy. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my question. That was absolutely going to be my my assumption was there was a no-tipping policy. These ladies have made it through their day. They do not want to get fired at this point. So in the end, he tells the other flight attendants they can get off, and only the pilot, co-pilot, first officer, flight engineer, and Miss Mucklow are left on board with the hijacker. Okay. So now they're all refueled and ready to go, and the pilot asks what his flight plan is. Mr. Cooper dictates another note to Miss Mucklow. Okay. Again, this is her recollection. Okay. Quote, going to Mexico City, or any place in Mexico, nonstop, gear down... Flaps down, don't go over 10,000 feet al altitude, all cabin lights out, do not again land in the States for fuel or any other reason, no one behind the first class section, end quote. Okay. So he also tells the crew to take off with the rear door open and the stairway extended, which okay. you can't do, right? No. The plane will not take off. It right. is not aerodynamically possible. Possible to do that, yeah. They explain the problem to him. He lets them close the door and they take off. Okay. Almost as soon as they're in the air, the weather takes a turn for the worse. 
and soon they're flying through heavy rain, sleet, and high wind at a very, very low altitude in the dark because the sun is set because it's November. Yeah. The crew tells Mr. Cooper they're not going to be able to make it to the Mexican border, and they ask him where they should stop and refuel. Again, he's irritated because obviously he said do not stop in the States for any other reason. Right. But he's not nervous. Okay. Everybody kind of talks about how they're expecting him to freak out and, and start shooting people, but that's not what happens. He's he just, just very says calm. He just says, let's go to Reno instead. Okay. So at this point, the hijacker is sitting at the back of the plane with Tina Mucklow, and this is really weird. I mean, okay, the whole thing is weird. I mean, the whole thing is a little weird, dude. <laughs> this is where it kind of edges into truly weird. Okay. So he's already made that mistake about thinking that the 727 can take off with the rear door open. Yeah. And now he doesn't seem to know how to open it from the inside. So he knows it's possible, but Tina Mucklow has to go show him how to do it. And when okay. he tries and gets stuck, she has to physically go over and help him. Okay. So this guy knows how to use a parachute. He seems to know all about planes because he knew the refueling procedures and where the extra oxygen was kept, but he yeah. doesn't know how to work the door controls. So he knows he knows planes. He just doesn't know this exact model? Well, he knows what it can do. Sure, sure, sure. I would argue that he does know this model really well. He just doesn't know the ins and outs of operating it. Okay, okay, okay. So okay. a lot of book research, not necessarily practical knowledge. Or... He knows how the plane is put together. Oh. But he's good. maybe never flown on a plane. Gotcha. Okay. 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 Um, and he probably has not tried this before. <laughs> gotcha. So about five minutes after this conversation at 8.13 p.m., as the plane is passing between Mount St. Helens and the Lewis River in southwestern Washington state, okay. that is an area of hundreds of square miles, just so you know. Yep. Mr. Cooper jumps off the end of the stairs and falls with his $200,000 and his parachute. He falls into what is now a full-on thunderstorm. Okay. No one on the plane was hurt, but they all feel the plane bounce when he jumps out. Huh. And they all continue to fly onto Reno with that door extended, and they have a very touchy landing. Without knowing that he had jumped? He told them not to look, and they didn't. But didn't he have the flight attendant back there with him? So she goes back to show him how to how to work the controls. Oh, okay, but then she and she's doesn't... like physically pointing out which buttons to push in which sequence right. and what levers to pull or whatever. And sure. then she goes back to the first class section. And okay. I think she was actually in the cockpit. Okay, so at some point he jumped out and nobody was back there to see him do it. Got exactly. It. And okay. they're not even sure that he really did jump out until they land. Oh, okay. So basically they land. They have this incredibly technical, complicated landing into this yeah. terrible weather. Yep. And then they just wait because the police and the FBI have to clear the plane before they know sure. it's safe to be out of the cockpit. Yeah. So they're met by the FBI and a whole lot of bomb squad experts because the other thing is they believe that the bomb might still be aboard. Sure. It's not. It takes them about five minutes to realize that the hijacker, the bomb, and one of the parachutes was no longer on board. And then the forensics people take over and the investigation begins. Okay. So the hijacker gets misidentified as D.B. Cooper by the press in the first news cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that that wasn't his name. 
Uh, I knew that that was something that was like a moniker that got attached to him in the news cycle and it just stuck. But Right. Well, I mean, it works as well as any other name because Dan Cooper is not his Is not his real name either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we think. <laughs> <laughs> if it was, somebody really dropped the ball there. <laughs> yep. So the FBI has photographs of the money. Right. And the serial numbers. So they distribute a list of the serial numbers on the $20 bills to 2,300 motels, liquor stores, banks, and police departments within Washington State and Vancouver, British Columbia, which is the closest big city. Sure. Yep. They also publish an artist's sketch of the hijacker and a description of the incident (laughs) in Skydiver magazine, which I think is clever. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know this skydiver? Yeah. The area where D.B. Cooper was estimated to have landed was searched by air and then by foot the next spring. Wow. Uh, Because remember, he jumps just as winter is beginning and winter is snowy and miserable. Yep. Uh, And also, they don't have a really clear idea of where exactly he jumped because the pilot is completely occupied by flying this like crazy you know, he can't use the autopilot. Like, nobody's paying attention to the exact point where the plane was when they right. felt that bounce. Right. It's just this massive search area. Most of the search area is forest. Yeah. Um, so they're, like, dragging the river. They're dragging a lake. Um, they're looking at every medium-sized, brown-eyed white man <laughs> who turns up out of nowhere. Okay. Um, and then they're also looking at missing persons reports. Yeah. Apparently there's nothing that matches up with the hijacker. Okay. So really they're looking for any kind of evidence in the forest that they can find. And one of the big things they're looking for is the parachute. Right. Because you would think that if the hijacker had not survived the jump, he would be hung up with his parachute somewhere. Yeah. He'd be up a tree someplace. That could be spotted. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, So the person who had rigged the parachutes, that's Earl Cossey from our intro story. He gives a painfully detailed description of them. This is like a page and a half in the FBI report. Okay. Um, The material, the types of cord, the hardware, the way it was packed, um, the serial number. I don't think he ever gives them the serial number, but he tells them like how many panels it has, how it's numbered. Just it's a very minute description. Could he remember what color they were? Yeah, he does. It was bright white, and it was nylon, which does not rot. That's true. So, so yeah. Kind of the best color to look for, really. I mean. Pretty spotable, yeah. yeah. You would think. You would think. You would think. <clears throat> um, so over the next 45 years. <laughs> oh, we're just skipping right to there. <laughs> well, I just want to tell you that, like, hundreds of parachutes and parachute pieces, like, a disturbing amount of parachutes were found in that area of the forest. Why? And yeah, I don't you like know, thinking about just... that. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I do not like it. It gives me the creeps. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of them out there. Okay, sure. A lot of skydiving in the area, although this is a pretty terrible place to skydive. I was going to say, this would be like failed skydivers. <laughs> Maybe it's the real cheap classes. <laughs> they make you sign a really heavy liability policy. <laughs> The FBI has DNA from the plane, specifically from the cigarette butts and the JCPenney clip-on tie that Mr. Cooper left behind. Oh, he didn't take the tie with him. Rookie mistake. No, he ripped that thing off and (laughs) jumped into the night. He took a lot of things with him. 
He took the bomb. He took the parachute. He took the money. He took his green paper bag because that was never found. Okay. But uh, yeah, he left behind his clip-on tie. Interesting. Okay. So the DNA that is on the tie is not great. Sure. Um, and they've used it mostly to exclude people. Right. It hasn't really helped identify anyone. The FBI investigates this pretty aggressively for a long time. It is assumed, I think, pretty early on that the hijacker died in the jump. Sure. And it's assumed that for a couple of reasons. So he's using a parachute that wasn't steerable. Oh. Yeah. So this is just a drop parachute. There's no there's no steering rig on it. No, it's just like, you know, you uh, put it on, you hope for the best. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. And he's jumping in incredibly bad weather. Yeah, he's jumping in a thunderstorm in the middle of the night. Right, but to the point where he wouldn't have known the altitude of the plane, and he wouldn't have been able to judge how long he should wait before he pulls the ripcord. <laughs> because apparently there's only like a five-second window yeah. that you can pull the cord so that it opens at the right height. I learned way too much about skydiving and why I don't ever want to do it. We'll add it to the list. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so basically, um, all those things put together, the jump would have been impossible for even a very experienced skydiver to land safely. And he was not, by witness accounts, a very experienced skydiver. Okay. But if he died, his remains and his parachute have never been found. Yeah. But the money is a different story. Okay. In 1980, a 10-year-old boy found three bundles of money buried on the banks of the Columbia River, about 20 miles away from where the FBI thinks Mr. Cooper made his jump. Okay. This is definitely some of the $200,000 handed over during the hijacking because the serial numbers match. Okay. However, it gets really weird. Like, you think, oh, great, here's a clue, now we're going to get somewhere. No. <laughs> it raises way more questions than it answers. Right. <laughs> so, first of all, it's in the wrong spot. It's upriver from where he jumped. What? Okay. Okay. This river was dredged, I think, in 1974 or 75. Okay. And the money is on top of the dredged part. Okay, what? <laughs> so, it was not in the river when the river was dredged, and it turned up on top of what? On top of the part yeah. that was disturbed. <laughs> I'm not explaining this very well. No, no, no. You're explaining it fine. It, it would be like walking down the street and finding a stegosaurus bone. Like, are you? those don't happen on the surface. <laughs> it's real weird. Okay. Also, these three bundles still had their rubber bands on. Okay. You would expect them to have decayed if they had been underground slash floating in the river for any amount of time. Uh, rubber bands are are pretty fragile they yeah. don't last forever yeah these rubber bands look just fine oh, also okay. it's not the full amount so it's three bundles of money okay which should have totaled six thousand dollars it only totals five thousand eight hundred dollars so two hundred dollars is missing i mean the kid had to pocket a founder's fee there i mean come on well the bundles are still like they're still, oh, but they're still sealed yeah ah. <laughs> they're not where did the $200 well, you go? you pull it from and the who, middle. It's fine. Who picks up a bundle of $2,000 <laughs> right? and peels off a couple hundred? You know, it's it's insane to me. 
Okay. In 2020, a scientist analyzed the algae growing on the bills. Okay. This is where it gets even weirder. I like it. He found diatoms in there that could only have come from land in the springtime, like May, June. Again. Again, he jumped in He the jumped fall. in November. Okay. So at some point, these were on land somewhere in some springtime. They picked up these diatoms, and then they were in the river for not very long. Yeah. Because they would have, they would have rotted yep. and fallen apart. It's it's just so weird to me. So weird. And they were they must have been buried fairly quickly because those are the only diatoms that are present. If they had been out in the wild for what? years and years, you would full, see a full season. Sure. Okay. Okay. Just so weird. Okay. So this discovery calls into question a whole raft of theories and assumptions yeah. on where he jumped and how the money, which again is the only evidence to surface in this case ever. Ever. Yeah. So how it got to where it did in the condition that it was. Uh, the quote from the diatom scientist is, quote, Cooper is still messing with us, end quote. <laughs> I mean, that's the, exactly where my head goes. My head goes, he walked back there, buried them, and, you know, took off again. He would have had to come back five years later and bury them. And then, like, somehow imagined that this 10-year-old kid would be out digging and find them. All right, so he's out in the woods. He sees a 10-year-old, and he goes, ah, I know what I'm going to do. He says, hey, kid. Hey, kid. Watch this. <laughs> In two years, come back to this spot. Do some digging right here. <laughs> he draws him a pirate treasure map. That's what he does. If it had been an adult who found it, people would think, oh, well. That's T.B. Cooper. You know, clearly, it's somebody who is associated. Is involved right, in this absolutely. In yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a regular 10-year-old kid. See, that's the genius of it. That's, that's, that's the genius of the plan is by having. I don't know. Huh? I don't know. In 2016, the FBI officially closed the case without identifying the hijacker or what happened to him. And it remains the only unsolved hijacking. Oh, actually, they call it air piracy. Which that, yes. Cooler. Can we please stick to the cooler term? <laughs> it is the only unsolved air piracy in the history of American commercial aviation. Amazing. So that is the fact. Okay. <laughs> or that is some of the facts. Those are, those are what the FBI understands to be factual. As reported to the FBI by people who may or may not have been telling the complete sure, picture. Sure, But you can see why people get so tangled up in this story. Yes. Did you have anything you wanted to add? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I thought you were going to go into theories. No, you were going to give me some theories. Oh, well. I'm not going to give anybody any theories. Uh, so, so. I'm so confused at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, okay. So if that's all the evidence as presented, mm -hmm. then the obvious answer is that he's a time traveler. Interesting. So he, that would explain the money he's, for sure. He's a time traveler, mm -hmm. uh, and um, he gets the money, parachutes mm -hmm. out of the plane, time travels in midair, taking everything with him, mm -hmm. and uh, and uses that money. He immediately converts it to uh, you know some other cryptocurrency. Ooh, mm -hmm. ooh, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. That's a good wrinkle. Untraceable. We'll go with that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> some some blockchain. Uh, currency there and then uh, and then just for fun time travels back and mm -hmm. and uh, you know five years later well to a point five years later obviously it's time travel he can do it that weekend if he feels like it Absolutely, uh, to yeah. bury some bundles there just to mess with people unfortunately right. while burying the bundles obviously he ran into sasquatch the two of them now live very comfortably in a nice little cabin in uh, southwest uh, Washington. 
you know, just chilling, mm. enjoying, enjoying life. I like it. Yeah. Living off of cryptocurrency. So my thought is that the parachute never opened and he died. I mean, yeah, that's probably what happened, but, you know. <laughs> but what makes me kind of sad in a way is that nobody re- reported him missing. You would think even if he had been a career criminal, whatever, he had some friend or somebody associate would, have would be like, you know missing, what, yeah. this, this style sounds like my buddy. Yeah. Um, he talked about doing this all the time. You know, yeah. it, nobody does that. Yeah. Nobody does that to a point where the FBI can identify anyone, which does make me sad. I, I don't like to think about somebody parachuting to their death and nobody missing them. Yeah. So my theory is that also, you know, Mount St. Helens blows up nine years later Oh, okay. in this neighborhood. Okay. okay. So I think that's why they've never found the parachute or the body that it's he landed under some ash. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to mm-hmm. think like he landed right in the caldera or something. No, because he would have, well, first of all, he would have been spotted if he had landed in the caldera. Well. In 1971. I meant, you know, like his body got jammed in there somehow and when mount st helens blew everything got do you get understand how volcanoes work they're very warm i understand <laughs> we have been through this, and through this. <laughs> <clears throat> well uh yeah no that is that is an absolute mystery and every fact that surfaces about it just makes it weirder and i love it you know, to me, the reason why this one is okay for me is that nobody mm-hmm. got hurt except for maybe right. the air pirate. And I'm okay with that. He he, okay. he he signed on for that, you know. Yeah, I mean. He chose to dive out of an airplane in the middle of a thunderstorm at night. So. He didn't take anyone with him. He didn't. He didn't take a hostage with him. He made threats that he never followed up on. We're never even sure if the bomb is an actual bomb nobody it was died. definitely not an actual bomb. it was yeah i mean I, I was i was honestly when you said like and he opened the bag and showed her i thought it would be like you know some white plastic around an alarm clock or something because that would have been like my level of of ability right there we, so she actually said it looked like the battery from an alarm clock that's amazing <laughs> well that is amazing i it's a wild story it's a crazy story and it lends itself to so many crazier stories because, like you mm-hmm. said, everybody's got a theory and they're all bananas. And I love it. I mean, a lot of the theories is pointing to different people who have said they're D.B. Cooper or, or who yeah. claim to know who he was. And they're all kind of, but they're all kind of, well, it had to have been this person because of this. But that doesn't explain, like, there's like no any, one suspect no, who, who fits, fits everything. everything. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like he would have been someone who had experience skydiving. He maybe knew that the CIA dropped things off over Vietnam using this type of airplane and the extendable staircase. Okay. Okay. Sure. He knows the plane, obviously, because he knows where the oxygen is kept. He knows about the refueling process, but he doesn't know like the nuts and bolts of the operation. Sure. Yeah. He knows that it's possible to fly at 10,000 feet with the flaps down and the landing gear down. But he doesn't really seem to grasp how hard that is or why someone wouldn't do it. Okay, so obviously he knew some things about the airplane, like really well. Yeah. And obviously he had a plan that was very well thought out. But you kind of just get the idea that it was an idea plan. Like he didn't have a lot of practical experience in jumping out of a plane at that altitude in that weather with that kind of parachute. Okay. 
So he did dream big. Sure. I'm just not sure that he survived. Yeah. In fact, I think it's pretty obvious that he did not. Yeah. Yeah. He probably died somewhere along the lines and just never, never got found. He's still messing with people, though. I mean, if you had pulled something like that off, you would you would coast on that for the rest of your life. You would you'd never tell anyone and you would just enjoy the hell out of it. First of all, (laughs) this is not my plan. No, obviously. (laughs) My plan would be much better. (laughs) (laughs) There would be no thunderstorm and no skydiving. You would you would arrange the weather beforehand. And uh, I would never spend the money. That's how I would I would remain. I would just keep it. Yeah, there you go. In a closet. <laughs> I'd do a deathbed confession and uh, say that I did that because I don't like the way the FBI investigates air piracy or something. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a political Again, statement. I have no problem with uh, the way the FBI... Investigates air piracy. Investigates air piracy. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have no horse in that race. It's probably worth pointing out. <laughs> Sorry, Carl. I hope that wasn't offensive. No, no, no. Carl understands. But yeah, that is the story, the very weird story of the hijacking of Flight 305. Well, that is bananas, and I love mm-hmm. it. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. You're welcome, Greg. Right. Anytime. Well, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories to the best of our ability. Uh, and Yeah, I always wonder if we should really be saying I that. mean, we fact check our stories. <laughs> it's just a matter of like, with a story like this, there's not enough, eh, whatever, it's fine. Uh, we fact check in air quotes. How's that? Or should we say we do our absolute best to try and fact check? <laughs> Uh, I'm digging myself a hole here. There you Never go. Mind. No, it's a good hole. Uh, to, to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. If you have a theory about D.B. Cooper, yeah. you can also let us know. Uh, you can do that by emailing us at relative.disaster at gmail.com. Just a note, our email has become, it has grown in leaps and bounds, and uh, we don't reply to very many emails so um Uh, but we do read all of them yes uh if you would like to have a conversation that is what our instagram account is for at relative.disasters thank you so much for joining us for this episode of relative disasters we hope that you've enjoyed the story and the discussion and please join us next time for another strange dangerous and interesting event from history my brother has selected our next disaster what's it going to be greg uh we're going to talk about a court case Oh, fun. Yeah. And uh, and this particular court case Mm -hmm. is one of my absolute favorites of all time. We are going to talk about the Wintle v. Nye lawsuit of 1958. Great time for court cases, by the way. Yes. Sounds good. Excellent. All right. Can't wait.